going through the first transition makes you hyper aware of what you want, what you don't not want, what you're willing to tolerate, what your needs are. And so I wasn't digging through all of that the second time around. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that is unapologetically you and then go get it. If you feel like you were meant for more and you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Making one intentional career change can set your life on a completely different path. And it's not just because you get a new career or you switch industries. It's really all of the work that you put into making the career change that actually makes all the difference. Going through the effort to learn how to make a very intentional career change that lines up more with your strengths and what you want out of life and work. Well, going through all that effort to be able to make that happen, it doesn't just change your job once. It changes how you look at it for your entire life and you can't go back. This is a different episode. This is a bonus episode. We call it where are they now series. So on Monday, we shared Michelle's story from when she first made a career change. And if you haven't already heard it, I would say pause this episode, go back, have a listen to episode 550. It's right before this one. As Michelle and I talked about many things regarding her career change that she'd made at the time, she also shared how many things were different in her life. Meaning she realized that not only did her priorities begin to shift, but she was also able to fine tune her desires and her goals in ways that she just didn't anticipate. This was thanks to all the things that she learned during her initial career change. Pretty cool, right? Well, as we started the conversation, Michal goes back and reflects on her situation that made her make her first career change. Here she is. When we spoke last, I had left my academic job as a professor about maybe three or four months. So I was fresh out of academia and I had a job in an academic setting doing research in a different kind of way. So I wasn't a professor and I was at that job for about nine months. And I discovered along the way that it didn't quite, it was a very good transition job. It didn't really quite fit everything that I was looking for. And I started applying to federal jobs on a tip from somebody that said, well, based on what you're saying and what you're looking for, you might really like the federal government working environment. And on a whim, I applied to as many jobs that sounded like they would fit what I was looking for. And I forgot about it. It, it, Months passed (laughs) and, and that's sort of how the federal hiring process goes. And A few months later, I get a flurry of interview requests, and I had forgotten about applying because I thought, you know, I'm a cognitive psychologist, I'm a statistician, I'm doing this kind of work, why would the federal government want me? And it turns out that they wanted a lot of people like me, and that sort of set the stage to where I am now. Let me ask you about that, though. I'm really curious about that comment that you made about... Why would the federal government want you? And so what what is behind that, first of all? 
Well, so my graduate training, which I am so proud of, is in cognitive psychology and psycholinguistics. So the psychology of language. I used to, and I still do actually, do research in literacy, learning how to read, vocabulary learning. And when you think about that content area, you think that your choices are pretty limited. And right now I'm working in the area of public health in which seven months ago I had zero experience. And when I would be applying to jobs for my first transition, my identity was so tightly wound with the fact that I'm a cognitive psychologist, Mm -hmm. I was a professor, and people have to know this, and they don't. They have to know the kind of skills that you can bring to the table. And for me to learn how to spin my training to show, hey, because of my training, I can learn really fast and I have the statistical skills that you need. And you don't have to worry about the fact that I'm not trained in public health. I will pick this up along the way. And when I understood that I can be very confident about that, it became really easy. I felt I was getting interviews without even having to try. I definitely want to come back and dig deeper into the how to spend my training portion and the getting interviews without even having to try, (laughs) because I think that our listeners absolutely want to hear more. But before we do that, I think it's really important to give some context as to what were some of the, the biggest learnings that you had first time around. And specifically, you went through and you know, when we got to meet you the first time, you had just recently had the realization that academia maybe wasn't where exactly you wanted to be over the mm-hmm. long term. And you were experimenting right. with a lot of different things. You had even started a, a side hustle with a photography business. And yeah. you were looking at a lot of different opportunities in a variety of different ways. And I remember that there's a lot of ways that you could describe that first transition. However, easy was probably not one of them. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. Okay. So (laughs) along those lines, I'm curious, before we even get into this most recent transition, which it sounds like you've done an amazing job with, what do you feel like were some of your biggest learnings the first time around? I wish I could take credit for this because I recently heard it and I felt that it characterizes what my learnings were the first time around. And I was really focused on what I wanted to be instead of who I wanted to be. And I learned in that first transition to focus on who I wanted to be and what is going on in my life right now that sort of restricts or eliminates some of these other possibilities. And focusing on the who instead of the what made it really easy to find a path forward. And it's finding the path that makes it go more smoothly and a little bit more easily, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it also resonates with me on a lot of different levels, both me personally, but also even, (laughs) you know, there's, there's been some really good research done around this too. People who are more resilient are those people who are very focused on, instead of bringing into, you know, I'm a CEO and that's part of my identity, or I am a, an insert your title here, instead more focused on the type of person that they are and want to be 
And that translates into resiliency as as well, which was very, very interesting to me. So what you say resonates on that level too. But I'm curious, what way did you see that play out for you? What did that mean in your world? It meant that I had to shed a little bit the identity that I had before. It meant a lot to me. And I knew myself as a professor, as a cognitive psychologist. And I had to sort of rethink about myself as somebody who is really a researcher who's curious about the world that really enjoys statistics and wants to make an impact, a meaningful impact in the day-to-day work that she's doing. And because of that, I think that helped me rebrand myself a little bit in a, a less restrictive way. So I'm still a researcher and I'm still a cognitive psychologist, but being a researcher opens a lot of different opportunities in different content areas than saying that I'm a cognitive psychologist. And I'm still the same person. It's just really thinking about yourself in a different way that opens up other opportunities. That's interesting that you bring up the branding side as well, because I think on the on the psychological level, it it helps tremendously around identity, like <laughs> like you were mentioning. But also, it helps when it as it tra- as you're thinking about it differently, it becomes easier. It seems like to translate mm-hmm. it into the into the branding and even more tangible side to it. Uh, and you know what? Actually, too, I'm curious because I have got kids. You're a parent. This idea has actually recently changed the way that. I interact with my kids, my children, because everybody in the world is like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, in in casual conversation as they, you know, as we're standing there and they meet the kids and everything else. And we have especially recently worked really hard to not cause people to think about them or not cause our children to think about themselves as any one particular thing. Like my son plays hockey and Instead of identifying as a as a hockey player, having him identify more as the the type of person who's going to give his all into you know, sports or whatever it is that he mm-hmm. does and be all in and that type of that type of thing. But I'm curious what your experience has has been in that regard too. It's been really hard because, <laughs> because yeah. and I'm laughing because for people like me who've had similar experiences, you're going to school and you're investing so much time in the what, yep. right? You're going yep. to be this thing. And then you go and do this thing, right? You have arrived and you get there and you look around and you said, well, I don't know that I want to be this what, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and sort of in trying to shift to the who and the type of person and thinking about this is my personality and I'm a sensitive person and I care about people and I need to be in an environment where people are like-minded and what can I do that embraces those things that are part of me? And it's it's really, really hard. It, I, I speak about it like, oh, it was really, really easy. I just sort of thought about myself in a different way. But I think that's why in the past three years, uh, I think I started working with Lisa Lewis three years ago. I think that's why it has taken me that long to get to this point. And I can see myself changing over time. So I'm trying to think about once I get to a certain space, 
that I will still be evolving. And in five years or 10 years, I might want to do something different. And that's okay. I'm trying to commit to the moment and the short term and do the best work that I can do that is aligned with who I am and worry about the rest later. One of the things that you mentioned to me before we really got into this conversation and hit the record button is that compared to your first transition, the second transition was much easier. Yes. And I'm curious, one, what you meant by that. I, I, to, I promised you I was going to ask about this later <laughs> because I am really legitimately curious about what your experience was like as it relates to that second transition. But that that was a really interesting comment. So tell me what you meant by that and how you felt it was easier. I think going through the first transition makes you hyper aware of what you want, what you don't not want, what you're willing to tolerate, what your needs are. And so I wasn't digging through all of that the second time around. I had spent a long time, the first transition, trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I feel about this? Does this feel comfortable? Does this feel like something that I would want to do? And the second time around, I already knew all of that stuff and have done a lot of research. And I just continued doing what I learned from you and the podcast is to continue having conversations and to continue engaging in relationship building. And you never know who's going to give you this little nugget of information that is going to open up a whole world to you. And it was a casual conversation that I was having with a colleague whose husband works in the federal government. And she said, he's kind of like you and you might enjoy this. Why don't you just try and see what happens? And, and that's how I got here. Uh, so one of the reasons why I think the second transition is a lot easier is because you do all the hard work the first time and you're always meta aware of this works for me, this doesn't. And when you feel that things are going awry or you have a sense of I want something more, it's a little bit easier to get on that job search train and to start doing the work. So I'm really interested in that, though, because I would say that one of the things I've observed is even before we got the opportunity to work with you, you were a pretty self-aware person. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to the average person out there, you were you were pretty self-aware already. For better or worse. <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> but I think that that's, that's been something that I have been really fascinated about because you know, we get, we've through the podcast and through our company, I've had the opportunity to meet so many people that are already very self-aware, especially compared to the average person. And mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, as they go through the type of process that you're describing and getting to know themselves on a different level and what they want and need as it relates to their work and their life, something is different and something is like we it's at a deeper level so I'm, I'm curious just for you what you feel like that something was because it sounds like knowing and doing the hard work for that the first time even though you were already pretty self-aware <laughs> was in some ways a, a bit of a game changer for you and, and just paved the way for future times around i think Going through the process and being self-aware gives you this sense of sixth sense. And if I can go back and think about at what point in my first transition job, I 
started feeling that I needed something different. And I can't really pinpoint exactly. I was at that job for about four or five months and I was pretty pleased and I, I felt really good about the work that I was doing. And I sort of had the sense that I would reach the full capacity of that job pretty quickly. And it it wasn't that some like I was thinking about it consciously. It's sort of something that happened because I went through the process and I knew, okay, well, I'm gonna start planning now so I don't get to that point where I feel that I'm stuck. And having gone through the process the first time, you can sort of gauge, it's just that experience gives you this sense of, okay, well, maybe I need to start thinking about what the next step is. So then what did you feel like were some of those actual tangible pieces as you were working in the, you know, the role that you transitioned to when we talked the last time around on the podcast, what were some of those recognition signs for you where it started to pop up and you, and you thought, Hmm, maybe I should pay attention to this and I should begin this transition again quicker. Sure. So when I first started my job, the onboarding was a steep learning curve, but three months into it, four months into it, I was getting my work done and I was getting it done very quickly. And there wasn't more for me to do. And I would create my own projects to preoccupy my time. And I acquired a lot of skills in that way. And it was very obvious that there was nowhere for me to move up. And I was a little sad about that because I really like the academic environment. I, I like being on campus. Yeah. But I also realized that if I'm going to get bored, I'm going to feel disconnected and it's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for my employer. And I didn't want to get to that point. That was one. Uh, the other thing that happened that sort of gave me a sense that I need to be thinking about the transition is that there was also an administrative change. Yeah. And in that administrative change changed some of the culture in the office and it wasn't something that I felt very aligned with. And for me, given what had happened to me in my first job when I was a professor, it was really important to me not to get to that point where I'm really unhappy. Because when I get to that point, and it's really hard for me to see the forest through the trees. And in a way, this helped me working on this earlier, it helped me keep logical and be very practical. And to be honest, I having not had this experience before, I don't think I would have been able to do and get to the point where I am now. Uh, I think sometimes people who are self-aware and are very productive, when things go bad or if things don't feel quite right, they just work harder at it. And I have to unlearn that because you can put so much time and effort into a bad situation and it's not going to make it change, right? There's just so many things that you can control and learning how to sort of step back and think about, okay, well, how do I make this better in the short term and how do I move forward? That's something that I wouldn't have been able to do had I not had the first experience. That's interesting. And you mentioned putting tons of time and effort 
is the default for, <laughs> you know, especially, especially people that have a tendency to be high performers, especially, you know, going along with that, that self-awareness and some of the other pieces too. I would say that I've also witnessed that people can put tons and tons of time and effort and energy and go back into that default to just work harder or try harder or try to make it work in one way or another even if it's a good situation, but not an ideal situation yeah. as well. I'm one. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting to hear that you were able to trigger completely differently. And, you know, it also brings up a different question, a little bit behind the scenes before we hit the record button here. One of the things you asked as since we were talking about, oh, we're doing this series where we are bringing on uh, people that have been on the podcast before that we've had the opportunity to help, you know, called Where Are They Now? And you said, how many of those people had transitioned into other jobs or other roles or other opportunities since the, since the point in time where we helped them and when we're talking to them now? And I told you about you know, 60-ish percent is what I would guess. And I'm curious, one, why why you asked and were you surprised? You said you weren't surprised by that, but why weren't you surprised by it? I'm not surprised by it because I think my experience is similar to other people's experience where you've been doing something for a really long time and your first transition comes up and you do this interview and you do so well and you get the job. And at that point, you don't at least for me, I didn't feel that I fully knew myself to know that this transition job, and I hate calling it a transition job, but this job that I had transitioned to yeah. is exactly the right fit. And the the process that you go through sticks with you. It's not like you change jobs and it ends, right? Not a one and done. Self-discovery, yeah. Self-discovery does not end after that. and your personal life also changes. Uh, my son now is three and he has different needs and I want to be around more. And it changes how you think about your job. So it's not surprising to me that the first job after the transition may be a good fit, but it might be not be the ideal fit and another transition might be required. It was true for me, and I would assume that it would probably be true for others as well. But I think what I'm hearing from you and what I've been putting together and what's been really fun for me as I've been having these conversations is that I've heard similar things again and again to what I, what you said earlier, actually, in that it paves the way for something that is even more ideal or even better. Or something that uh, you couldn't quite imagine at, at that particular time until you had that continuous iteration that you're talking about. I can't remember what word you used. I think you used evolution, maybe. Yes. And I think the things that I was thinking about when I wanted to make my first transition were completely different than the things that I was thinking about for my second transition. So for my first transition, I was really focused about, as I said, rebranding myself taking the essence of what I can do and showing somebody else that I could be of value for what they're doing. And that was my focus. The second time around, I was focused about meaningful work again, but also thinking about how does this job fit into my lifestyle and how will it fit for the things that I'm thinking about doing in the future? Mm. And the thought processes were completely different. 
That's pretty cool. And <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> gloss over how this second transition was made, because at the beginning of this, you said, I really focused on how to spend my my training and my learning into this next role here. So I'm really curious, what did you mean by that? And how did you do that? So the market for research psychologists is much bigger than the market for cognitive psychologists. Even though a cognitive psychologist is a research psychologist and the training is very similar, we are all trained in how to do good research and statistics and making sure that the science is good. So thinking about in making that second transition, thinking a little bit more broadly because I wanted to do impactful work and impactful work comes in all different kinds of content areas. And when I was interviewing, I wanted to tell the interviewer, yeah, you're looking at my resume and you're wondering why would somebody with my background would want to be in the area of public health. Well, it's a very compelling mission. And even though I wasn't trained in this content area, I was trained in these other ways. And this is what I can bring to the table. This is the value that I can add. And thinking about my training in a broader way, and it wasn't that I was saying things that I wasn't able to do. Those are things that I could do just in a different kind of context. And that worked and being very genuine and saying, I was doing this work before and I feel I have a higher calling. I feel that I want to be more connected with the work that I'm doing and and how it affects other people. And being genuine about that was very appealing. And where I work now, nobody bats an eye about my previous experience. They actually think that it's something that is valuable that I bring to the work. How did you, when we get into the nitty gritty, because one of the things I heard you mention earlier is I, you know, at one point thought nobody's going to, (laughs) nobody's going to think that my previous experience is valuable at the federal government. And then somewhere along the way, you had a change of heart. And then you started looking at this on a broader perspective. And as you mentioned, rebranding yourself, and then you leveraged that to be able to submit a flurry of applications, I think you called it. Mm -hmm. So what took place? What do you feel like were some of the things that really helped or that you did during that, that caused people to pay attention? Because I heard you say, I didn't just get one interview, but there were multiple, multiple organizations reaching back out. Yes. So I reached out to anybody that I knew that had a federal position and ask them about the process. And I learned that the federal hiring process doesn't have a backdoor option. So you submit your resume and there's an actual human that reviews every resume that is submitted for a particular job. And you have to make sure that in your resume, somebody who doesn't have experience in your field or doesn't have experience for the job that is advertised can understand what your skills are. And when I had that piece of, as I said, that little nugget of information that opens the whole world to you, I could think about, okay, well, how do I articulate my skills that somebody who has no background in statistics can understand that I can do this job 
And that was sort of the formula that I used for every resume that I submitted. And I got through the first pass. And I know that in the training that you do in the boot camp for people, you advocate to get through the back door if possible. Talk to people, see if you can get your resume on their desk. And I think that is a very fantastic method. And I advocate for that 99% of the time. But with the federal hiring process, you can't do that. They have very rigorous standards on how resumes are reviewed. So in this case, and in the interviews that I got, I got through the front door. Somebody looked at my resume and it was articulated well enough that they took a chance on me. I heard you say, and I want to push you just a little bit here on two areas. The first of which I heard you say that, you know, I was able to articulate some of my previous experiences in a way that fit what they were looking for. Part of those are my words, not yours. What helped you the most with that? I hate to sound like I'm repeating myself, but just thinking about my skills in a broader way and in a genuine way that could help the mission of the agency that I was applying for. I think that's really, really important. I think sometimes we get stuck in thinking, well, I'm doing work in this area and I really want to shift into doing something else, but I don't have the content to be able to do that. And I don't think that's true. Underneath it all, I think employers want people with skills that are applicable and transferable, and that they want people who are really anxious to learn as fast as possible to do the best job as possible. And articulating that on my resume, articulating that on my cover letter seemed to work, I think. And going there in person and interviewing and being very genuine and not hiding the experience that I've had before, but articulating in a kind of way to say, you know, I did this body of work before. This is what I learned from it. I think this could really help you here uh, was, was a very successful strategy. When you got down to the nitty gritty of how you did that, was that, you know, you went and locked yourself in a, I don't know, a coffee shop, maybe locked yourself isn't the right word, but uh, you, know, you went, went to a coffee shop and you, you know, brainstormed for four hours. What did you find worked for you to come up with that and think about that and translate that from thoughts in your brain down to something that was on digital paper or actual paper in, in one way or another? Sure. So what I did, and this is a, I don't know that this is the most efficient method, is that I made a list of all my important accomplishments, all my skills, the things that I did. And then I look at the job application and look at the language that was articulated in the job application and rebranded what I did in that kind of way. So it was just basically understanding where the employers coming from and what they're looking for and the language that they speak and showing them that I could speak that language, that I can take my experience and apply to what they're doing. And it wasn't easy. It sounds like it's easy, but it's not. It, it required really thinking about my experiences and what was most important and articulating what the employer would be looking for. Mm, very cool. I appreciate you detailing that out. That 
that is super helpful because part of what I'm hearing is that it is not one. It's not. Gonna, it's not going to be easy necessarily. This requires real thought and decision making, and you know, putting the time and effort into that. But then the other thing I, I am hearing from you is that as you sat down with that brainstormed list of all of your accomplishments and results and everything that came along with it, then a big part of that, about that was knowing and understanding and doing some of the research on the organization. And then taking also the the job post and then the language that is used in there and translating it into that. Is that a fair summary of, of what you did? Yes. And if I can offer the listeners a little bit of a tip. Please. If you do this kind of work, your resume will stand out because 90% of the people, they just submit their resume. They don't alter it to fit the job requirements or the description or the mission of the organization. And if you spend the time writing a well-articulated cover letter that shows that you're very interested in the job and why you're interested in it and let your resume reflect that, it's very easy to get to the top of the stack. We're in the process of hiring for a marketer and growth hacker for our organization. And that is literally what the job of that person is to do, or at least a portion of the job, I should say, is know and understand the people that we work with and translate a lot of what we do into the language of of the people that we work with. And that serves as our marketing and our content. So I fully expect people to be able to do that in our our process. And it, it blows me away that even for somebody who that is literally their job, we still get tons of tons of things that do not meet that criteria at all and are not what you just described. So yes, <laughs> you will go to the top of the stack in a variety of different ways. And even though it's difficult, it's far easier to make that happen than what you imagine. And I do want to I do want to say that I have just as a note, although it's not easy necessarily to go in the back door, there's a variety of different ways that I have been successful in helping other people go through the back door in federal government and and still live within the systems that are in place. For example, you know, one very, very easy way, I shouldn't say easy, <laughs> one very, very <laughs> simple way that that has happened is being able to being able to get in touch and befriend some of the recruiters so they have one other additional extra incentive to pull your your resume out of the stack. In addition to the amazing language that is used inside to resume and application. Yeah. So that's just one out of many. Uh, but I will say to your point that there are a lot of systems in place and it's easier to work within those systems, even when you're going through or attempting to go through the, the back door, if you will. So that is true. And if I can add another little tip. I didn't know this while I was applying, but now that I've been in the system, I do know this to be true. So on federal job applications, at the bottom of the job description, there will be an email there. And that email actually goes to a person, a live person who will answer your questions. And so if you have questions about the job application, you should email them. And even if you don't have questions about the job application, you should email them to show that you're interested. And if they can't answer your question, they will tell you that you can't. But it's that little boost that gives you a bit of visibility that you wouldn't have otherwise. 
Absolutely. I appreciate that tip. And speaking of giving advice and tips, here's what I'm really curious about. You've gone through now multiple transitions. And if you think way back to that first time around for just a moment, because we've got many listeners that are in that position. You were even a listener in that position the first time (laughs) you and I got to chat. Oh my goodness. A year and a half, two years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, a year and a half, two years ago, it was a totally different situation. And you were discovering that, hey, this isn't where I want to be for the, the long term. And this isn't a great fit. So now that you're back in that mindset, what advice would you give to people that are there that want to discover what it is that they, they can be doing and should be doing and make that type of transition that you did? I think the first thing that I would say is it's okay that you don't like what you thought your dream job is going to be. And it's going to take a while to feel that it's okay, that it's not, it's never a loss. All experiences are valuable experiences. And for me, and and thinking about that, we were going to talk today and I knew that you were going to ask me this question. Yeah. (laughs) For me, what, feels like it took so long and looking back it's not really that long is getting to the point of saying to myself and meaning it that it's okay that I don't like doing what I'm doing right now and because I worked so hard for it and and I got to this point and you feel that well I've invested all this time I don't want to let this go and it's okay to let it go and it's just a part of the evolution of yourself. You're going to discover that there's a lot of different things that you might like to do and, you know, tap into those things and do little experiments and try things out and see whether you like it or not. But at the end of the day, don't ever feel bad about yourself for wanting a change because that is what's going to hold you back. Getting that interview or submitting resumes or working on relationship building is hard, but the hardest work I think is coming to terms with and being okay with wanting to make a change. Hey, if you love this story where we talk through and walk you through step-by-step how someone got to more meaningful work, then you'll absolutely love our audiobook, Happened to Your Career, An Unconventional Approach to Career Change and Meaningful Work. I even got to narrate it, which was so fun and something that I really enjoy doing and will definitely do for future books as well. But it also contains firsthand accounts from career changers on how they made the move to more meaningful work, just like we include on the podcast here. And actually, it's been called the best audiobook experience ever by some reviewers. (laughs) You can find those reviews and the book itself on Audible, Amazon, or any other place where books are sold. Seriously, just pause this right now and go over to Amazon or Audible or wherever you want and download it. You can be reading it and start it on your career change in literally seconds. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out.